Alrighty, well. I know you guys were spoiled. I've been gone, and you've had all these great speakers here, and Pastor Mark, and what have I taught once in like the last five weeks? So now it's time to get back into the book of Judges. I know it's been quite a few weeks. Someone turned her microphone off. I'm just kidding. Judges chapter 20. A few announcements first before we get started. Um, the men's retreat is on Friday, and the majority of men have still waited and procrastinated to the very last second. I would too, but I cheat. I have people do it for me. <laughs> so um, you won't get a lecture from me, but just make sure it happens. Yeah, that's right. Ed has to take care of it for me. So, but Ed's right there. So if you didn't do it yet, get with Ed. He's right there. He'll point you in the right direction. He will lecture you. I will spare you. <laughs> but get in on that. I know a lot of us are looking forward to doing that. We've been doing that every year since the very first year that we have been together as a fellowship. So um, that's one. Uh, number two, I wanted to let everyone know, if you missed the Wednesday when we came back from Peru, we had a time where we were talking about uh, international missions. We were talking about the future of our fellowship and outreaches. I highly recommend you watch that. It's online now. It's on YouTube. It's also on the website, I'm pretty sure. And I wanted to make sure that everyone knew because we didn't really put any amounts to it. But we increased the support to um, the work going on in Peru six, three, two, four, three hundred percent. So 300% we increased the support there. So, And that starts uh, next month, I believe. Next month? Or did that go in not this month? Okay. Th- that's what, next week? Okay. Maybe next week. Okay. I'm deaf and slow. They'll be happy whenever it comes, so praise the Lord for that. All right, so let's open up in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to spend a few minutes building the backstory to chapter 20, because I left you with a cliffhanger in chapter 19, and it's been a few weeks. So let's go before the Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, for the work that you're doing in us and through us, and we pray that you would continue to make yourself known, whether it's in South America, whether it's in South Carolina, Lord in our homes and in our own hearts and our families. And we pray that you would have progress and that you would be made and magnified, Lord, lifted up and glorified, and that you would just have your way in us. And so we lift up this study to you this evening and pray that you would guide and direct us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in chapter 19, (coughs) there was some really crazy stuff going on. And so first thing we want to do is give a disclaimer. This chapter is not quite as rated R as the last chapter, but it's definitely PG-13+. plus. If you remember, chapter 19, a Benjamite had taken a concubine, which is not an official wife, but is a legal girlfriend, I guess you could say. And that concubine began to play the field and committed adultery and left. And so this Benjamite went and found her, and found her in his father-in-law's house. If you remember, it was kind of weird that he was being called the father-in-law. There was some legal uh, delicacies there that we were kind of tippy-toeing around. Remember that they got drunk. They started drinking day and day and day. They had parties there, and the father-in-law is like, don't go, just stay here, just stay here, just stay here. And then finally the Benjamite says, no, I got to go. And so They leave, but they don't go till late in the evening, which is never a good idea. Never a good idea. 
And so then as they're leaving, they say, well, why don't we just go stay in this random town? And the Jebusites were living there. That would be Jerusalem later on. But they end up staying in the city of Gibeah in the land of the Benjamites, which was very important. Um, they were going to sleep in the square. They didn't have a place to sleep. But another man came and said, hey, you know, you're, you're just like me. You're, you need to come and um, come to my house, stay the night at my house. And that's what they did. Then, in the middle of the night, the Benjamites come knocking on the door. We want the guys that are here. We, we want you. They say, no, take my concubine. The other man says, take my daughter. Uh, they are taken all night to the extreme. They are raped consistently through the night. Um, the Bible is clear that in the morning, the man woke up. How did he sleep? Disgusting. I have no idea. He pretty much says to her, come on, let's go. Let's get out of here. And what had happened? She had died, grasping at the door. Uh, th we talked about the darkness of the nation of Israel in the time of the judges. We talked about how they were not seeking after the Lord, how they were all, every man was doing what is right in their own eyes, and that was spoken of in chapter 20. And so what the man does then is he takes the corpse of his concubine. This is the Bible, y'all. I'm not making this up. This is, this is how dark it is. They cut her up. He cuts her up into 12 different pieces and sends them to her to all the tribes. And as you can tell, the entire nation is outraged. And so they're all coming together. That's where we pick up in chapter 20. If you want to listen to that whole study, it's a couple weeks ago. It's also online, and you can listen to it. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 20, it starts. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, Tell us, what did this, how did this wicked deed happen? Verse 4, so the Levite, and apologize, I realized that I said he was a Benjamite earlier. I misspoke. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So he gives the recap. I want you to know this recap is not accurate. This is not what actually happened. This is his choice words explaining it the way that he wants it to be explained. He doesn't involve the drunkenness. He doesn't involve the fact that he said, oh no, you can have my concubine all night long. He doesn't involve any, any of his misdeeds or his mistakes. It is all on the Benjamites. Now, don't get me wrong. The Benjamites 
have gone way over the line. Now, I know we've been a little bit desensitized because of movies, and we've been a little bit desensitized because I just summarized all this stuff. No <coughs> matter of fact. But I, I want us to focus a little bit here on the gravity of what he is saying. They tried to kill me. Instead, they raped my concubine, my family member, my betrothed, somebody who's connected to me. And so I was so upset about it, I decided to cut her up and send her all over the country. What part of this is logical? Now, what part of this makes perfect sense? Now, I want you to understand, again, the gravity. The entire nation of Israel, all the men of war are here, and he is summarizing this court case of why, they're all, why are we here together. Let me tell you a story of what happened to me. And we know from the scripture that it is not entirely accurate. He is not guiltless. And on top of that, what part of this made sense of saying, I'm going to cut her up and send her all over the place. So that's my RSVP. That's my invitation to this thing. I can tell you historically, there is no archaeological or historical evidence that says that this is a thing that was done at that time. So I can't from evidence say that this was a cultural thing that they would have done. That's just, it's not there. There's no evidence for that. This is so weird. And it just goes to show us the depravity of man, the places that we will go aside from the sovereign word of God, a moving of the Holy Spirit, the restraining power of God on this planet, what we are capable of. We should never be amazed at how dark we can really go. Now, they have a righteous anger for this. But we're going to see in the time of the judges when every man does what is right in his own eyes that not everything is meets the eye. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But I am missing a slide. So we're going to read from verses 8 to 17, I think. All right, it's 8 to 17. I'm at a typo. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. Verse 11. So all the men of Israel were gathered, to get, gathered against the city, united together as one man. This is important because it's Israel against Gibeah. But let's keep reading here. Verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of, Is of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah, to go to the battle to go to battle against the children of Israel verse 15 
And from their cities at that time, the city of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Now this is the area that I want to spend some time in. It says here, and I'm going to warn you now, I'm going to go off into some uh, military history, and then I'm going to go off into um, some nation of Israel history, and then we're going to have practical application as well. So we're going to be all over the place, strap in. First of all, we see that the men of war, they're all gathered together. It says they'll go up by lot. So what that means is they're going to pull straws and whoever gets it, they're going to go to battle. It says then, and it just seems weird, they're going to take 10 men out of every 100 and then 100 out of every 1,000, 1,000 out of every 10, so 10%. And what does it say that they're going to do? They're going to take those 10% and they're going to make provisions. So this is the exact opposite of, for example, the American military. In this time period, it is a nine to one ratio of fighters to logistics. In the United States military, it takes nine people in logistics to every frontline fighter, every soldier, every Marine that's actually carrying a rifle in the front line. We have way more back end logistics for that because of distances and because mostly technology. Because if you look at the history in the Civil War in the United States, it was about a 10 to 1 ratio, or 9 to 1 ratio. It's not up until World War I that because of technology, now you need mechanics, and now you have more medical technology. And so I found that fascinating that that ratio was about that time. And then I went down a rabbit hole. You guys ready? You want to go down one? Sure. You don't have a choice, so let's go for it. So it's every man between, and we'll just take a random number, between the ages of 18 and 35, that can carry the sword in the nation of Israel, they're not full-time soldiers. So they're farmers and they're tailors and they're working. But every male, and we're going to make this up because we don't know the ages, between 18 to 35 is drafted and is in the military. And it's a 9 to 1 ratio of fighters to logistics. That means a major portion of your population at any time is drafted to go to battle. And you might ask, well, what is that like in the United States today? I'm glad you asked that question because that's the question I asked and you're going to get the answer to it if you like it or not. Currently, 0.4% of the United States population is in the military. Of that 0.4%, 90% are in logistics of some kind or some kind of support field. And 10% of that 0.4% are in frontline combat roles. And so you can see how society has changed. Now, you may ask yourself, at least I did, what portion of the United States today is currently in the military or veterans? You guys have such great questions. You think just like I do. 7% of the current population of the United States is either actively or in the military or a veteran of some kind. 
I find that fascinating because it is the lowest it has ever been in the United States history uh, over a period of time. Because there are times where the United States, um, before World War II, the United States military was smaller than the size of Switzerland, fun fact. But I digress. Coming back. In this society, when people make decisions for war, it dramatically affects the entire country right away. You can't have long-lasting small combat that the majority of people are not even affected. And so it just brings the humanity back that when they say as a nation, we are going to handle this, they mean as a nation, they are going to handle this. Now, um, for you biblical scholars... This is exactly the way that the nation of Israel was to handle a situation like this, as was written in the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy says that the elders were supposed to come forth, that they were supposed to have a case and hear both sides. That's what we just read. The decision is made. We are going to war. And then the decision is made again. We're going to put 10% to logistics. And that means that nine, per, nine out of every 10 men in that area are ready to go. And where are they going to go? To the city of Gibeah, bringing us back to our text. The focus is not on the entire tribe of the Benjamites. It's on the city of Gibeah. But they go to the Benjamites and they say, hey, this whole thing can be solved right now. Just go to the town and hand them over. What do the Benjamites say? The Benjamites say, no. Whatever we want to say about the Benjamites, we know what we have just read in chapter 19 several weeks ago, at least in the city of Gibeah. I hope it's not a test for how the rest of the Benjamites are, but maybe it was. I don't know. These people are vile. They are disgusting, and they need to be dealt with. That being said, the Benjamites, who are outnumbered, by an astronomical scale, say, no, they're our brothers. They're in our tribe. No. And if you pick a fight with them, you're picking a fight with us. I told you I had to go to a couple different um, points here. I want to point out on a study of the nation of Israel, the Benjamites' uh, army of 26,000 men in verse 15 is almost half as much as it was when they entered into the land in the book of Joshua. The entire population of Israel is declining and has declined since they were, came into the promised land. When the Lord was feeding them and giving them manna every day and providing for them and leading them by a pillar of flour and a, a fire and a cloud of smoke throughout those 40 years in the desert, they grew or stayed the same. When they went into the promised land, they were doing well. But the farther and farther away they go from the Lord and the word of God and following after him, the more they are declining. Now, this is very important to us Bible students because when we look at history, people, un they make the mistake of keeping a couple things constant in their mind. Number one, that climate stayed the same. Climate has never stayed the same in the history of the world as long as it's been recorded. We, we've talked to you here in history circles about different ice ages. Many people don't know that one of the major falls for the Roman Empire was population decline from the plague. Also, now you may be thinking, no, that's the Middle Ages. Now, that was a separate, a separate plague. But also because 
of climate change in the Roman Empire, less food was being made and it was harder to make food and therefore the population was declining on top of that, on top of a couple other things. So I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I want you guys to understand that when we study biblical history, because you'll read a commentary or you'll hear a pastor where the Bible says there was a million and they'll be like, oh no, that was an exaggeration. It must have been 10,000. It must have been 100,000. What's your evidence for this? Because those populations are not constant. They go up, they go down. There's all different reasons for that. Same thing for um, different governments. And it's very important for us in those time periods. It's very important for us to know this because we also look at the nation of Israel and its history. And in our mind, we say it was one way. But we're talking about thousands of years of history, and there's dramatical shifts up and down population and military and governments in that area. And so we want to build that framework in which we're looking at the text. In the book of Judges, we're in a particular type of Israel. The population is in decline. The military works a certain way. There is no king. There is no ruler. Every man does what is right in their own eyes. And these Benjamites could care less, coming back to our text, about the nation of Israel because they are loyal to their tribe above all else. Is there some kind of parallel in American history to that? Where people maybe were more loyal to their state than they were to the United States as a whole? And maybe those states said, well, I can decide with our state if we want to obey the Constitution or not. That's up to us. Well, that's what's happening here. This is where our application comes in. And then we're going to talk about the Benjamites. And that's this. Are you more loyal to the United States of America than to the Word of God? Like, where does your loyalty lie? Because these Benjamites are going to war 10 to 1, 11 to 1 odds to defend their brother, who are despicable, over the entire nation of Israel and against the Word of God. Because they're loyal to their people. And they're strong. They are fighters. And we are going to see they are good fighters. And they have 700 snipers. Left-handed uh, sling shot. Now again, we might think leave it to beaver. Or we might think our little kids outside with slingshots. These slingshots are massive. I mean, they go and it takes a lot of strength to do it. And if you um, watch history documentaries about that, you know, things that I do because I'm a weirdo. I mean, they're not kidding. Those things are dangerous. They are deadly. And if they're on target, they can go through armor. They can uh, just, just imagine you're riding your bike down the road somewhere and a giant rock the size of a grapefruit hits you at 50 miles an hour in your head. That puts them down. I don't wear a helmet. See what happens. You're still going it's it's to take you down. And these guys are chucking these things. 700 guys are chucking at them as you're trying to come after them with the sword. I mean, guys are dropping. And we're going to see that here in a minute. These men are not cowards. They are savages. They are fighters. They are strong. But they're loyal to Benjamin. They're not loyal to Israel. And they're not loyal to the Lord. Well, I'm always going to make that application. What if we were like that towards the Bible? What if we were like that to the Word of God? What if we were willing to go up 10 to 1? What if we were willing to say, no, I'm not allowing this? What if we were saying, 
that they were gonna, we were going to stand up for these things, what kind of effect would that have? And that's our application. Who are you really loyal to? Now, I am a red-blooded American patriot, and I'm not speaking anything against it, but at the end of the day, we answer to a higher authority. What should the Benjamites have done? Well, let's see what God does. What does God say? You know what? Let us go talk to the Lord. Let us pray. Let us look in the Word of God. And whatever He says, we'll make that decision and come back to you. Instead, it's war. It's a fight. So let's read verses 18 through 25. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped at Gibeah, against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on, the, on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. What? What? What just happened here? You know, there's so many times in the scripture where Israel goes to war, they don't ask God. God says nothing. They go to battle and they lose. And it's easy. The formula is easy. Ah, you didn't ask. You should have asked him. Here, however, in the book of Judges chapter 20, they seek the Lord's face. They receive an answer. They obey the answer. And they are defeated and devastated. 20,000 on one day. Man, we must have messed up. They go back to the Lord the next day. What should we do? They're weeping, they're crying. Go, go again. 18,000 men die. Could you imagine? You turn on the news. The United States of America goes to battle and we lose 20,000 men in a day. Our government would be overthrown. People would be put up against a firing squad. If we lost 20,000 people in one day, we lost 50,000 in the Vietnam War over 10 years. 10 years. This is one day. And on top of that, Christian, you're thinking the same thing I do. But they asked God, and God said so. What happens here? Now, number one, I have no idea. I'm going to tell you a couple of opinions. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't really care. If I don't know, I tell you guys I don't know. But I'm like, oh, what does Papa Chuck say about this? Because David Guzik, he knows. He, he figured it out. But I go to Chuck, and Chuck says, I don't know. And I go, if Chuck don't know, and I don't know, we don't know. So let me give you the theories. Now, sometimes you'll read these as facts from the commentary. Number one is there could be sin in the camp. We don't know. Maybe they're disobedient. Maybe it was pride. Maybe they just said, oh, God's on our side. We're going to do this our way. Maybe it's because they have a reliance on the army. Like they feel like, oh, we got all the guys. We'll make this happen. God gave us a high five, but we'll handle this. 
You know, Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, sometimes we do things in the name of the Lord, or we say, I can tell you as a pastor, how many dumb things I've heard that were followed or preceded by the Lord is leading me to blank. And we're like, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not, not what you're telling me. But here we know the scripture says the Lord said to go. And so I lean on my own answer, which is, I don't know. And who says you have to be successful? God said, that, oh, you're, you're going to win. No, he said Judah goes first. And Judah went first. And he said, go again. And they went again. Who says that you are supposed to be successful? We watch too many Christian movies. You know, if you just do what God says, and you just come to church, and you love him, and you tithe well, and you pray once in a while, and you have a good marriage and a happy family, your kids are going to obey the Lord, you're going to be financially stable, and you're going to be healthy. I'm going to tell you, a lot of, there's Christians dying of cancer every day. They're getting accidents like everyone else. Violent crimes are being committed against them. They're losing their jobs. They're getting promotions. I've met bad Christians where they're wildly successful. I'm like, Lord... Judgment is mine, says the Lord. That's, a, that's his problem, not mine. Who says that he owes us anything or that we have to be successful? Nobody says that. But I know that he is righteous and he is true and he is perfect and his ways are above my ways and are beyond my finding out. And so I'm going to lean on that through every situation that I go through whether it's highs or lows. Because if I'm being blessed or I'm being quote-unquote successful, it's in spite of who I am. I could tell you right now. And if bad things are happening to me or, you know, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust alike, I deserve that. 100% I deserve that, and it's His grace that it's not worse than it actually is. We just have to change our perspective. But what happens here? You see, Benjamin is not just being disciplined the entire nation of Israel is being disciplined because they've, none of them are seeking after the Lord. The only time they're seeking after the Lord is now there's a problem and they have a battle and their lives are on the line, so now they want to ask the Lord. But your question is the same question I have. What happens next? Let's read verses 26 through 28. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God. Now we are talking and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow... I will deliver them into your hand. That's a different answer. And again, the whole nation is humble now. It's not just the Benjamites. Everyone is there. And I guarantee you right now, you will not have, you will not have a revival in the United States of America or repentance if you think, well, the Democrats have to repent or the, the conservatives have to repent, the homosexuals have to repent, the transgender has to repent. This whole nation has to repent, every single one of us. There's no us in them. There is simply sinner before the throne of God. That's it. And as long as we keep saying, well, it's the Benjamites, it's Gibeah, oh, it's that denomination, it's those atheists, it's those rich people, it's those poor people, and as long as we keep acting like this, we're all going to lose together. And so we need to come before the, ho- the throne of God, in the house of God. We need to weep and repent and fast. And if intercession 
with him because that's what burnt offerings and peat offering are. There's fresh offerings to God. They're just gifts. And then also making peace and fellowship. Remember the book of Leviticus? And the whole nation is there. Everyone knows it. You lose 30,000 people, 35,000 people in two days, you guarantee churches will be full. You know, churches are empty right now compared to the population of the United States. Well, good. That means we're not faking it. And the entertainment centers, they're full. But in 9-11, on 9-12, every church was full to the brim because people were questioning. Well, I hope disaster doesn't come, but if it does, the same thing will happen again. And we have such a loving and gracious God. He's there. You know, if there's ever a time the Lord could have said, I'm not going to be here this time. I'm not answering this time. I'm not talking to you this time. You guys don't deserve it. It's probably this time in the book of Judges, this far deep. But the Lord responds, I will give you victory tomorrow. Well, let's read now. We're going to read the rest of this chapter, a little bit of reading, verses 29 through 48. Then Israel sent men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as it, at first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba, and 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, And the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambushed whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah towards the east. In verse 44, And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, And they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. 
Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. And they stayed at the rock of Rimon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. There is absolutely no mercy from the nation of Israel now on the third day. They changed their strategy. They engaged them into battle, drew them out of the city because they ran away, but they fainted it. And so then more soldiers came in behind them, went into the city, started burning the place. The Benjamites see, they think they're winning. They look back, they realize they're losing. Then Israel comes and attacks them on top of that. And they are now in a sheer panic and they're being routed. Well, the men that are in the city, the men that are running from the battle, they are now being chased down. And it's being explained as they're going farther and farther and farther. The nation of Israel is taking them and they are taking no prisoners, none. Then they start burning Gibeah. Then they start burning every Benjamite town. They're not only um, burning them, they are sacking them. That means they are robbing them. They are taking all their jewelry, their gold, all of their precious stones, and they are destroying families and chasing them off. When we leave this chapter here, there are only 600 fighting men left of all of the Benjamites. And God gave them victory, but at what cost? That we're going to find out in chapter 21, because this story is not over, and it's going to be next chapter. We're going to pick right back up with the 600 survivors and the nation of Israel. What is the nation going to do? One of their tribes has been almost obliterated. And the last time I checked as a Bible student, we didn't lose any of the tribes. Oh, but there's lost tribes. Lost to who? You and I maybe, but not to the Lord because they're numbered in the book of Revelation. So somebody knows who they are. And so what's going to happen? We're going to see that in the next chapter. The Benjamites were strong. They were loyal. They had elite corps. They had a tough army. They were fighters. They were doing well. They picked a fight. They said, we're going to defend our own. And then they got exactly what they asked for. I worry about some of us. What if we get exactly what we ask for? Some of us, we pray to be victorious, quote-unquote, in politics or in finances or in business or to get your... the loved ones back. Is your family more important than honoring God and the Word of God? Is business more important than honoring the Lord and the Word of God? Is our nation, is our political party, is our whatever? You, you put those things in front and then they don't, they don't pass the test of time. The only thing that will pass the test of time is that Jesus tells us through the book of Psalms, through his word, that he will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. No one will walk with you there. Your brother, your sister, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your grandparents, none of them are going to walk with you. Your riches won't go with you. Your poverty won't go with you. Your health won't go with you. Your lack of health won't go with you. 
your sports team, your political party, the people that you put stock in, no one can walk through that valley but the Lord. So ask yourself, whether it's standing up for the wrong team or maybe being victorious in the wrong way, is that really what you want at the end of the day? Or maybe we should be asking, what does the Lord want? I'm grateful that we're all here in the house of the Lord, seeking him out, having our peace offering, which through the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ himself, our great high priest, our sacrifice. And we come boldly to the throne through him. And so we're going to do that. We're going to spend the rest of this evening praying and interceding and seeking him out. We're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes together. We want to pray one at a time, loud enough that we can all hear so that we can agree with each other, interceding for one another and allowing him to move in our midst. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that you reveal these things to us through very difficult times. If we do the math roughly, Lord, 60,000 men died to give us this message. How much it cost. Don't allow us to be so prideful and arrogant in the wrong things, Lord. Help us to humble ourselves and to seek you out, to honor your word in Jesus' name. Amen.